A few years ago, I went with a team from this church to the Dominican Republic. Uh, we went down there to work with, work for uh, Kids Alive, one of their campuses in the DR. Uh, they wanted us to build a basketball court. Um, they, you, you may not know this, or, well, you, you probably know, like I did, that baseball is the number one sport in the DR by far, but you might be surprised to hear that the second most popular sport in the country is basketball. Uh, and so they wanted a basketball court. They had the land, they had the space, uh, they just needed help. And so we went down there to help them do that. And we spent several days, uh, all of us on the team, um, you know, putting down tie rod, shoveling uh, gravel, and then pushing and dumping wheelbarrow after wheelbarrow full of concrete. It was exhausting work. Uh, most of us ended the day very tired and very sore, but also deeply fulfilled. Uh, we really had a sense that we are involved in something important, something meaningful. Uh, many of you, I know, can relate to that experience, whether on a missions trip that you have gone on or just from the work you do here uh, in our church, through our church, or in our community. Uh, and I, I think that connection to deep meaning and to purpose is part of what makes trip like, trips like those so powerful for so many. But it raises a question, and one that I think is worth thinking about together this morning. Why is it that, you know, concrete work, shoveling gravel, painting buildings, or, or whatever else we do on those trips can feel so powerful and so meaningful when we're doing them at Kids Alive in the Dominican Republic, and yet at the same time, that same work, that same labor can feel so tedious and even meaningless when we do it here? I mean... The work, the labor itself, is the same. It doesn't matter where we are. Concrete is concrete. So why is it that sometimes it can provide us with a deep sense of purpose, but at other times it leaves us wondering, what's the point? Well, if we thought about it, my guess is that most of us would say that the difference is that in the DR, we know, we understand that what we are doing, we are doing for Christ and for his kingdom. We have a sense of meaning and purpose because we know that what we're doing is part of something larger, something that will be of eternal significance. And if that's the answer, if that's what makes the difference, and I think it is, then the practical question for us this morning, I think, is this. If that's what makes the difference, then could that be true of our daily work as well? Is it possible that we could see and understand all of our daily work as being done in partnership with Christ, as service for our King? Well, that's the question I want to explore this morning as we continue our series, God at Work. Today, we are talking about our everyday work, our daily work. So turn with me, if you would, to Colossians chapter 3, Verses 22 to 25. Colossians 3, verse 22. Paul writes this. And now a word for slaves. Obey your earthly masters in everything. And do it, not only when their eye is on you and when you are trying to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and with reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, Work at it with all your heart, as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. 
Anyone who does wrong will be paid, repaid for their wrongs. There is no favoritism. Now, before we go further, I think it's important to say a couple quick things about this passage. First, in our present context, I think we can say it is easy to read this passage and to be disappointed. We would all no doubt prefer if this little passage here was instead a ringing denunciation of all forms of slavery on the basis of the gospel followed immediately by an apostolic command for all owners to free all of their slaves. But we need to remember that Paul didn't live in our world. He lived in his world. He lived in a world where slavery was taken for granted in a world, in fact, where slavery had existed for thousands of years in every known culture and every known civilization. No one was questioning if slavery should exist or not. They questioned only how it was that slaves and masters should relate to one another. But I will say that there are some interesting, I think, little glimpses of hope here, even here, because even in this passage, Paul is insisting, he's writing to slaves and masters, and he is insisting that the lordship of Jesus should permeate the way they conduct themselves, even in their own households, and even in this relationship between a master and a slave. Uh, it may not abolish slavery, but it does, I think, start to chip away at its foundation. Second, along similar lines, I also want to warn us against drawing simple analogies between the slaves of the ancient world and employees in our own world today. Uh, I know it's tempting, right? It's right there. You've got slaves and masters, and it's easy to read that and think, oh, that's just like employees and employers today. I, I think we need to be careful not to do that because doing that whitewashes the grim reality of slavery Look, American employees, whatever their situation, however poorly they think they're paid, are not slaves. And it's important to remember that. Uh, what I'm lobbying for here before I get started is that we need to see this text in its own first century context. We need to ask first what Paul is saying to his audience in his world. And then after that, we can ask what that might teach us in our world today. So let's jump in. What does Paul have to say? What is he saying here to slaves about their daily labor and its meaning? Well, Paul begins in verse 22 there, you may have noticed, with, what, with exactly what slaves are no doubt used to hearing from everyone, right? He says, slaves, obey your masters in everything. He then adds, no doubt to the delight of their masters, that they should uh, work hard even when they're not being watched, even when they're not being supervised, and if you're a slave, you're thinking, okay, yeah, so far, so familiar. This is what everyone tells us. But then Paul moves, I think, in a startling direction. He tells them that they should work wholeheartedly and that they should give their best because, verse 24, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. Paul says, look, if you are in Christ, whether you're slave or free, if you are in Christ, then you now serve a new master. If you belong to Christ, then you are his servant, and the work you do, you do for him. Paul says, look, I, I know that the, the, the work you are doing is work you didn't choose and work you may not enjoy, 
But you need to see it as serving your Savior, Jesus, because it is. Once they accepted Jesus as their Savior and their Lord, all the work they do from that point forward, they do ultimately for Jesus. So what does that say to us? What might that teach us in our context? Well, first and foremost, I think Paul would admonish us that whoever our earthly employer might be, wherever we do our work, that we too should remember that ultimately everything we do, we do for Jesus. Jesus is our Lord, no matter where we work, no matter what we are doing. Ultimately, in the end, we will give an account of our work to him. Wherever our daily work takes us, we are servants of Jesus. Therefore, Paul would tell us that because that's true, everything we do, we should do wholeheartedly and giving our best, because it's our Savior that we're serving. Those of you who have been around me for a while know that I have a long-standing issue with one of the uh, famous children's songs I learned at church, This Little Light of Mine. Uh, This is the motion. That's how I was taught it. This is your uh, candle or lamp, I guess. You know the song, This Little Light of Mine, I'm Gonna Let It Shine. You know, hide it under a bushel. No, I'm gonna let it shine. Here's my issue with the song, all right? My issue is the passage that inspired it doesn't say that you all have a little light of your own. What does it say? In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, you are the light of the world. Not you have a light, you are a light. Okay, big deal, I know. But here's why I think it's a big deal. Because if I have a light, then who gets to decide where the light goes? Me. It's my light. I'm the one who decides if I'm going to hide it under a bowl or put it on a shelf. I'm the one who decides if I'm going to bring it with me to work today or if I'm going to leave it at home. It's my light. I decide where it goes. But if you are a light, and if in this case you are God's light, then it's God who decides where you go. It's God who decides if you're going to be on the shelf over here or in this room over there. And actually, Jesus goes on. He says, he looks at his audience after telling them they are the light of the world. He says, and listen, none of you, not a single person here, would be so silly and so foolish as to light a lamp and then hide it under a bowl. No one would do it. And if you wouldn't do it, then God most certainly would not do it. Friends, you are God's light. And that means wherever you are, whatever you do, God has put you where he wants you. And Jesus promises us, God puts none of his lamps in the cupboard. He puts none of them under the bowl. God did not make you the light of the world only to then put you in a cupboard for 40 plus hours a week. You are his light, whether you are in the U.S. or in the D.R., whether you're pouring concrete, doing laundry, or preaching a sermon on Sunday morning. Now look, God may one day call you to different labor or to some other job or some other location, But God did not make you his light to put you under a bowl. You are his light, his lamp, and he has put you where he wants you. I think that's easy to understand, right? It's easier for us to grasp when we're doing certain kinds of work, when we're in the DR, when we're providing childcare during mops or connections. It's easy to see that 
as serving Jesus. But what I want you to remember this morning is that you are still God's lamp. You are still his servant, even if you're pouring concrete at a Walmart in Fridley or if you're populating a spreadsheet at U.S. Bank. Look, all I'm saying is this. If Jesus, if Jesus himself is telling you you are his light and he doesn't put any of his lamps under a bowl for 40-plus hours a week, you should believe him. From the moment we give our lives to Jesus, we are his servants and we are his light, no matter where we go and no matter what we do. So wherever you are, wherever God has you, work at it with all your heart because it is the Lord Jesus you are serving. That's the first point. The second, Paul reminds his audience that whether they are slave or free, they are, they are, well, first he reminds them whether they're slave or free, all of them, right, all of them are servants of the Lord Jesus. We all serve a new master. Second thing he says, a second related point, uh, is that Paul insists that God can use anyone's work, anyone's work, for his glory. Now look with me, if you would, back just a couple verses. Chapter 3, verse 17. It says this, Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now that, I would guess, is a verse many of you are familiar with. Uh, it's funny, I was talking to people this week, and I, I was made aware it's a verse many people have on their, or have had at one point, on their bathroom mirror or their refrigerator or pinned maybe to their cubicle wall. It's a verse that's helped many people find meaning in work that they otherwise struggle to enjoy. But here's what I want you to notice this morning, is that Paul repeats almost that exact same point just a couple sentences later in the passage we read earlier in Colossians 3, 23 to 24, where he says, whatever you do, give it your very best as if you were working for the Lord and not for human beings. And so I think it's worth asking, well, why is Paul repeating that so soon? He just said it. Well, it might be that Paul knows that we just, this is a lesson we just need to hear frequently. I mean, I know it's a lesson I need to hear frequently. But I think Paul's doing something different. I think it's important that the second time when he repeats it, that he is addressing slaves. He is addressing a group of people in his world that he knows are looked down upon. He's addressing people whose labor is frequently dismissed as unimportant, as insignificant, as beneath the notice of their betters. And Paul, addressing them specifically, says... He wants them to know, he is telling slaves that their status as slaves does not in any way disqualify them from participating in God's kingdom work. Even though their work is dictated by their earthly masters, Paul says, God still can and will use their work for his kingdom and for his glory. Paul is addressing, I think, this divide that exists in his world. Uh, he knows that there are people that are going to read his letter who are going to think that the work, the labor of free people, that's more important, that's more significant, and it's easy to see how they might engage in work that's going to bring glory to God. But slaves, you know, they're, they're given the menial tasks. How could God use their work? And Paul rejects that division he rejects it entirely. He says that slaves are equal partners in the kingdom work. 
God can use their labor just as much as he can use anyone else's. Well, I'm sure you'll join me in saying praise God that we no longer have that particular division here in our country and in our time. But I do think that in our modern world, we have created a new one. The temptation for us is to not divide labor between free labor and slave labor. I think we divide it between sacred and secular, between spiritual work and earthly work, right? And sometimes this leads us to elevate certain forms of employment, you know, maybe missionaries or pastors. Oh, they're engaged in in sacred work, spiritual work. And maybe to put other kinds of labor, you know, plumbing, accounting, important work, we'd be in big trouble if no one could do it, but, you know, earthly work, non-spiritual work. Now, if that resonates with you a little bit, or if that's something you feel like you hear and run into a lot, that's because this is part of our culture. And what I think is interesting is that you'll note from this passage, and actually you'll notice that it is true of every other biblical author, No biblical author acknowledges such a distinction. Paul would be confused by it. In fact, Paul goes out of his way in verse 17 and 23 and 24 to emphasize the exact opposite. Paul insists explicitly that all of our work, whatever we do, we do in service of our king. All of it can be used by God for his purposes and for his kingdom. And by the way, I think even though that is sort of our cultural milieu, the separation of sacred and secular, I think deep down we know that's wrong. That's why we can go to somewhere like the DR and pour concrete and understand that that is part of God's kingdom work. We're still just shoveling gravel and pushing wheelbarrows, but we know we're doing it in service of Jesus. We know God will use it. We can understand how he will use it to further his purposes. But if that's true, I think it's worth asking this morning this. If we believe, if we trust that God can use concrete work in the DR for his purposes and for his glory, why is it that we don't believe and don't trust that he can use the same work for his glory when we do it here? I think the problem is we don't understand how he's going to use it. But let me tell you something this morning. We may not understand how God can use our work on any given day, but the value of our work doesn't depend on how we understand it. It depends on how God uses it. It depends upon God's plan and his creative power. I was thinking about that this week. I've worked some menial jobs. I I built cubicles when I was in seminary. And and I understand how some days you're you're involved in this particular task and you just think to yourself, how can this possibly be that important? How could God use this? And it occurred to me this week, I don't remember why, uh, that a little over 2,000 years ago, somebody went out to their stable to do their morning chores of feeding their cattle, their sheep and goats, maybe a donkey, I don't know. Uh, They went out to pour the food in the trough, and they got out there and found that this trough, which had been badly constructed in the first place out of low-quality materials, had finally given up. It had rotted through and collapsed. And so now, before they can even get to their morning chores, they've got a new chore, a new task. They've got to build a new trough. And so they set to work. Finding some wood, they start making it. 
And if you had found that person and you had said to them, hey, hey, listen, this job, don't overlook it. Work at it with all your heart. You never know how God might use it. That person would have laughed at you probably. And you can understand why. Oh yeah, this is real important. God's definitely going to use this feeding trough. I mean, how can work get any more insignificant? Right now, I'm working on behalf of some sheep and goats and donkeys. That's unimportant work. You can see why they would dismiss it. Because why would anyone imagine that this trough, this manger, would serve as the cradle for the Savior of the world and the Lord of all creation? But it did. Friends, we may not understand how God is going to use any particular task we're engaged in at that time. We're just not going to understand all of it. You know why? Because we are not the creator God. He is greater and wiser and his purposes are beyond us sometimes. But he assures us that there is value in our daily work, no matter what we are doing, Because first and foremost, we are serving our Lord and Savior in everything we do. And second, because our God is capable of using anything for his purposes and for his glory. And because of that, we should work, as Ben admonished us earlier, with diligence and integrity at everything we do. Because we are doing all of it for our God and for his purposes. Now, I hope that's an encouragement to you. It was to me as I was working through it this work, this week. And it's something I hope that will help you find meaning in the work that God has for you each day. But I have to, this is, you know, my own problem maybe, but as I was preparing this week, I have this voice in the back of my head every time I talk about stuff like this, uh, that, that is skeptical, right? And it's, I, won't, I won't tell you whose voice it is, uh, but it's a voice that says, okay, it's great, it sounds nice, it's great, but is it true or is this just, is it really just Paul talking to a group uh, of downtrodden people, helping them to feel better about their lot in life? Is, this, is there any theology here or is this really just what we might call deistic self-help? Right? It's like any self-help book you might grab at Barnes & Noble or Amazon just with a little bit of Jesus sprinkled in. Or worse, we might ask with Karl Marx, is this just the opiate of the masses? Is this just religion being deployed to keep downtrodden people in their place? Is that all it is? Is it just helping us feel better about the work we already happen to have? Or is there truth to this? Is there something more there? Well, you won't be surprised to hear that I've gone through with the sermon because I think there is something more there. Uh, This is not, I want to say emphatically this morning, empty encouragement. This is not just Christian self-help. This is a deep biblical truth that we are partners with God, definitely junior partners, but we are partners with God in a much larger project Turn with me, if you would, over to Romans chapter 8. I want want to read one more passage this morning to drive this point home. Romans 8, starting in verse 18.
writing to the church in Rome, Paul says this. He says, I consider that all of our present sufferings are not even worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation itself waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself would be liberated from its bondage to decay, and catch this, and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. Now, I know there's a lot going on there. Let me say two things, emphasize two points Paul is making that I think we have woefully underemphasized, at least in the American church in the last hundred years or so. First, Paul is reminding us, he is insisting emphatically that creation is not destined for the scrap heap. In fact, to the contrary, Christianity from the first page to the last page of scripture has always insisted on the fundamental goodness of the created world. After all, we, are the, we insist it's our God who is the creator of all things and the world he made was very good. Now yes, Paul concedes right here in this passage that because of our sin, because of our failure, creation was subjected to futility and decay and we see evidence of that everywhere. But if you think that God is going to surrender his good world to futility and decay forever, you don't know our God. And I'd add, you weren't paying very good attention on Resurrection Sunday a couple weeks ago. It is the resurrection of Jesus that is the guarantee, the promise, that God will not abandon his good world to death and decay. In fact, the victory of Jesus guarantees that one day all of creation will be set free from bondage to decay just as the physical body of Jesus was set free from bondage to decay on that resurrection Sunday and just as our bodies will be set free from bondage to decay one day as well. Creation is not bound for the scrap heap. Second, Paul assures us that God still chooses and delights to work in and through human beings. And that means we are going to have a role in the new creation just as we did in the original. Now look, I'm with you. If you, if you are thinking about this and thinking, look, shortly after all that's transpired, God is going to just, re, just remove us from involvement in creation. I mean, look what we did to it the first time around. And if you're creation, you can see where the creation itself might say, you know what, I, I, I just as soon not have these humans as our stewards anymore. But Paul insists on the exact opposite. He says, in fact, that creation itself eagerly awaits for the children of God to be revealed. That's us, redeemed humanity. Creation eagerly awaits for redeemed humanity, saved through Christ Jesus, to take up our Genesis 1 mantle to be the stewards God has always called us to be. Creation waits for us to assume our vocation so that it might be what God always intended for it to be. And you never know, you can't possibly know, how God is going to use your daily work in his purposes, in his grand work of new creation. 
What I want to emphasize this morning is that our daily work, whatever it is, has meaning in itself because we are partners with Christ in his cosmic work. And that means the work we do, whatever it is, it's not incidental. Like Adam and Eve, the work God has chosen incredibly, and maybe in a way that's baffling to us, to work in partnership with human beings. He delights to work in and through us. It's just who he is from the first page of Scripture to the last. And look, that certainly includes the work of sharing the gospel message, absolutely. But it includes everything else as well. Paul says, everything you do, you're as to do, do as unto the Lord Jesus. You may not grasp how God is going to use it for his purposes, but you are not the creator God. If you, after the service, followed me down the hall and stopped in my office, uh, you would see that it is adorned with uh, pictures of my wife and children uh, and also with artwork made for me by my daughters. So this is one example here. Uh, this is another, if you can't read that, that's Jesus pointing at a donkey saying, I'll take him, Palm Sunday artwork, two of my favorites. Uh, now you could, if you were that kind of person, you could look at the artwork that adorns the walls of my office and you could say, you could look at me and say, yeah, what's wrong with you? Don't you know that on eBay you, you could get prints of Caravaggio and Degas for just a few dollars shipped free to your office? Why wouldn't you do that? Why not decorate your walls with those masterpieces? And I would tell you that you couldn't pay me to do that, to swap them out. These are the works of my children's hands. And I delight in their work. That's why it's on my wall. I know there's other options out there. But this is the work that brings joy to me, that fills my heart. Look, I understand that we, all of us from time to time are engaged with work that we, we look at and we think, how can this be important to God? How can, how can it matter to him? Doesn't God know that there are people out there doing work of great importance and great significance for his kingdom? Yes, he does, as a matter of fact. He sees them and he uses their work for his purpose and for his glory. But he sees your work too. And he will use, he, he can and will use your work for his kingdom and for his glory too. I know that because God too is a father. And like me, he delights, he delights in the work of his children. That's why he made us in his image. God's plan for creation was always, from the very beginning, to adorn his cosmic canvas with the work of his beloved children. And that is just as true today as it was in Genesis 1. So I'll close with this, your take-home idea. I'll echo the Apostle Paul one more time. Given that is true, given that we are partners in God's cosmic work, do whatever you do, as though you are serving the Lord Christ himself, because you are. And so give it your very best, because you never know how God may choose to use it.
Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are, in fact, the creator God, uh, that you are so much more powerful, more brilliant, and more creative than we could possibly imagine. And I thank you, Lord, that you delight in the work of our hands. Father, it's sometimes it is very hard for us to understand why you have chosen to work in and through us, but you have. You are committed to it. It's who you are. And so I pray, Lord, that you would impress upon our hearts that truth. Help us, Lord, to believe it. And then help us, Lord, to do everything we do with our whole hearts, to give it our very best, knowing that by doing it, we are serving you and we are participating in your work. In your name we pray, amen.